What was the first and most important thing or job that our customers needed us to do? We have to be constantly pressing ourselves to stay ahead and not to be afraid, frankly, sometimes to cannibalize ourselves, to deprecate products that aren't working, to completely shift the landscape. So output, not input, I think is incredibly important. If you hire the right people and trust them, they'll do the right thing anyway. In fact, they'll do more than you're expecting. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. On this episode of Founder Real Talk, I have Sarah Fryer, the CFO and COO of Square as our guest. I interviewed Sarah live at GGV's recent Evolving Enterprise event in San Francisco. I hope you enjoyed this great interview. I want to start by introducing Sarah Fryer. Sarah is the CFO and head of all operations at Square. I've known Sarah for many, many years. She's much younger than me, but we have known each other for many years. We first met when Sarah was a research analyst at Goldman Sachs, covering the software space. And she quickly became the most influential analyst on Wall Street covering software, had many prescient stock calls. One of my favorites was when she put a buy on success factors right out of the global recession in uh, 08, 09, when the stock was in the, the mid-single digits because it was a GGV company, and she wrote it all the way up to $40 a share. So thank you, Sarah. That was great. Mark Benioff realized how incredible Sarah was and recruited her away from Goldman Sachs to join Salesforce, where she was SVP of finance and strategy. And then we were really excited in 2012 when Sarah was recruited away to join another of our portfolio companies, Square, as CFO. She's had an incredible run at Square, has raised several rounds of financing, including the IPO, and has been a real driving force behind the stock's move from nine at IPO up till, has it, it's right around 50 today. I'm not sure if it got there, but quite a great move. Sarah's on the boards also of Walmart, New Relic, just joined the board of Slack, so it's been really fun to collaborate with her in that capacity as well recently. And also a nonprofit board called Spark, which is focused on changing the lives of at-risk middle schoolers through mentorship. So good on you. That's awesome. So everybody, please join me in welcoming Sarah. Thank you. Thanks so much. Awesome. So Sarah, let's start uh, talking a little bit about the culture at Square. Sure. Uh, you've said that you know, customer focus is really, really important. It's all about empowering the merchant. Yep. But you have millions of customers at this point, several million active merchants, and they're SMBs. It must be hard to really stay focused on all those customers. How do you guys do that, and how have you imbued that into the culture? I mean, you all know this, so I'm not about to tell you anything you don't know, but our first operating principle as a customer is to understand the, someone's struggle. Actually, we don't put the word customer in there because we want it to be company broad, so having someone in the accounting team understand the struggle of their business partner is just as important as having an engineer understand the struggle of a restaurateur that's trying to run payments at 11 p.m. on a Saturday night and suddenly the whole thing goes down, right, and you can't close out all your tickets. So it's super important to keep that in front of people. And I think the 
the understanding their struggle bit is important because often engineers in particular have just such great ideas and they think it is absolutely the thing you must build and it turns out it's not the thing that anyone actually needs or the other people are just not as excited about it as you might think. And so a lot of that iteration is getting all the right people talking over and over again. So we try to bring, first of all, our customers into our space as much as possible. We're lucky that we work in a world of commerce, and luckily everyone kind of partakes of commerce. So from our coffee shop at Square is Andy Town, so they're a Square merchant. We just have them in our space. Wise and Sons is one of the options that you can go get your lunch at Square, so it's kind of fun to see them in motion. But it also allows us to do a lot of testing of the product, but in real environments, actually pretty hardcore environments because there's just a lot of transactions happening. We also try to make sure, even when you walk around the building, right, pictures of our customers, um, we do a lot of pop-ups where we bring people in. It's wonderful if you're like me and you never have any time to actually shop. Things like Valentine's Day or whatever holiday is coming along, there's always a pop-up that saves you. But beyond that, some of the ways that I've really seen it taken to you know, the next level as we were actually rolling out a kind of a new set of features around one of our point of sales, we actually put engineers behind the counter of Suvla here in the city. So if you know them well, they're super high intensity, everybody wants to eat there at lunchtime, and to suddenly have engineers whose day job right, is to sit hands on keyboard, not maybe the most extrovert to begin with, have to actually run a point of sale, like they were terrified, their eyes this big, like our head of engineering, Alyssa, you know, did it. And actually, you know, not nearly very successfully either, frankly, <laughs> but I think the, the chef at Suvla was a little horrified that this was happening in his restaurant. But it just created this amazing sense of empathy and understanding the struggle. And I think the more you can do that and mm. force that your, your people out of their comfort zone, the better. You know, other ways I think about it, we have support quotes at, uh, so I run our customer success organization, and we have quotes that go out to the organization all through the day, mostly actually the bad, because we want to really make them sensitive to what's not going well. And then we have a town square. We, we love puns at Square. So every other week now, we have our stand down for the week um, for all of Squares, but it always starts by talking about a customer something or other. And, and frankly, we've gravitated more and more in the last few years to a something that's bad because I think particularly because the environment is so good at the moment, you can get caught up in your own like you know PR of how amazing everything is and how great you are. And so it's this constant reminder that frankly, we fuck up all the time. But when we do, we actually can really ruin someone's day, potentially livelihood, and that we have to take that incredibly seriously. So it's layer upon layer, and you all know this, but just finding ways to really engage with your customers all the time. I can't say it enough. You know, one of the things you, you've done around this customer centricity that really was unique to me, I've seen lots of companies that have been public and you know, the, the way they communicate with investors gets pre-programmatic and a little bit stifled. Yeah. In your S1, on your roadshow, you yeah. highlighted lots of your yeah. merchants. In every quarterly letter yeah. you put out, you merchants. highlight merchants and tell their yeah. stories. You encourage them to ask questions on your 
quarterly earnings call, which yeah. is live and in front of all your shareholders, which is yeah. very brave. Like, how have those worked out? How, how have those initiatives been embraced internally? And what kind of feedback do you get externally on that, that sort of thing? So the starting point from that, actually, I'll give Jack a ton of kudos. Like, he always sets a bar where he wants us to do the world class. Like, literally down to, as we were writing our S1, I was like, what, you know, before we started putting pen to paper, Jack, what do you envision? And he's like... I really would like someone to pull that thing out over a cup of coffee on a Sunday morning and just read it with interest. I'm like, have you ever seen an S1? <laughs> Nobody does that. <laughs> like, Nobody in their right mind does that. But he couldn't get off of that. And so therefore, it caused us to really think hard about how to turn it into something that was interesting to read, that taught you about the company, but in a way where it unfolded in a much more narrative style. The shareholder letter became that same thing, where we wanted to take the time every quarter. And frankly, now when I see companies you know, put out like a standard press release in an 8K, I'm like, what a wasted opportunity. Because it is every time you're in front of anyone, you're effectively talking to a customer. For a shareholder call, you know, again, pushing innovation deep into your company. So I ask everyone to be as innovative as possible. I want it to be best in class, regardless of if it's a new product like payroll that you're rolling out or a new product like Square Capital or it's the earnings call. I want us to think differently and not just do what everyone else did. So in that case, I mean, I did come from a world where I listened to more earnings calls than you ever want to have to listen to. And I would get so frustrated by A, the management team reading stuff to me. I'm like, no, I actually know how to read, so I can do all that ahead. Let's get into the tough stuff. And I think people are just filibustering, frankly, when they read to you. You should want their questions, right? You want to be stumped in a way. Like, how great is that? You learn something on a call where you didn't have the answer. It's going to cause you to go away and do work. And I think viewing it that way, not that you have to have all the right answers, but actually you want to engage in a conversation just changes the frame of reference a lot. Even silly things like the after call with analysts, and I'm going off topic a little, but I used to hate this callback thing. So think about this when you're doing any investors. Like how much can you just get people all on the same call and be hyper-efficient, because everyone's busy. And you know, they all ask kind of the same questions anyways. You get out of this whole reg FD world where you accidentally share something you shouldn't. And we would find that um, the naysayers would start to get swayed by other people. It's better when other people tell your story, right? Mark Benioff really schooled me and like the best salespeople are when your customers start selling your customers and you just get out of the mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And so I view that in everywhere, customers to customers, investors to investors, analysts to analysts, like whatever it is. But if you can get out of the way and have them take their excitement, that's when it gets really potent. That's really interesting because at GGV, I can say that we know when we're in a competitive situation, our best salespeople are other entrepreneurs. Yeah. So I think it, it works both ways. So I want to pick up on one of the threads you just mentioned around innovation. Yeah. One of the things I've just been amazed by, that this move in your stock from you know, single digits all the way to $50 over the last couple of years is not by luck. Okay, you guys have done an incredible job. And Square, in many ways, if you ask people who you know, are closely watch the company, they talk about it as an execution machine. Mm -hmm. You guys have never grown less than 30% in any quarter in terms of GPV, which is you know, mm -hmm. gross payment volume. Yeah. Even as you're zooming past 60 billion in, in annualized rate of GPV, mm -hmm. you've 
similarly grown adjusted revenues close to 50% last quarter as it's, you're going past a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. You've provided guidance for Wall Street for this year of close to a quarter billion of EBITDA. I mean, just incredible execution. But at the same time, you're also viewed as like an incredibly innovative company. Mm-hmm. Obviously, your, your products are beautiful and work really well and recognized by just about everybody. You're releasing more and more products and innovating on conference calls and kind of any way you possibly can. And those two things are really hard. Being a great executor and a great innovator at the same time, you rarely see that in the same company. How are you guys doing that? So I don't think we have all the secrets. And by the way, like the 9 to 50, remember, it was like 18 to 9 to 50. Like, <laughs> let's be humble, and at some point there'll be another cycle because never believe your own press on either side, actually. It actually has to start with innovation, right? At the, the core, we have to be constantly pressing ourselves to stay ahead and not to be afraid, frankly, sometimes to cannibalize ourselves, to deprecate products that aren't working, to completely shift the lens. We just made a move yesterday, I think it was, the day before. We have an appointments product that we really think of as the point of sale for anyone that's selling time. And we've been iterating and iterating on that product. It's a SaaS-based product that we complete with MindBody, for example. And, you know, it's just been like, uh, 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 like really incrementing, which means it's never going to be great if you're just incrementing your way. So we kind of pulled the band-aid off and we're like, let's just think about this differently. Like, we have no, we have no kind of free on-ramp. Like, what customers love, I think, are usage-based models because then they don't feel like they're being kind of screwed over. If you're the yoga therapist and you take a month to go to Bali to perfect your yoga, but you pay 30 bucks a month, they get like kind of in their head like, I'll just give 30 bucks away for no reason versus if they just pay every time you book an appointment, like I find that those models work really, really well because you're all aligned. Then you're aligned to helping them book more appointments, which is good for their business and it's good for your business. So we made a decision to say, let's just rip it off. We're not going to have any monthly fee. It's just free now. When you get up into being a really large, like multi-studio, whatever, yes, there'll be a fee for that because there's way more feature functionality, but we're just going to get paid for every payment, actually, that happens. So if I book my yoga class and it costs me, whatever, 30 bucks, we'll take our usual kind of payment fee. So it was a brave step. I'm going to, you know, it's both an innovative step because then we had to think differently about how we're not going to go to market and how the product itself will unfold. But it, it's also in some ways like an odd discipline step because, you know, if you've given guidance and you've already assumed yes. that you're going to do something, you have to still be brave in that moment and do what's right for your customer. So that kind of brings me back to why I would always solve for innovation first. And just don't be, a, particularly if you're in a move of going from private to public, or even just private from one series to next, and you suddenly feel like you've got to show up with all of this revenue and growth, like, think long term. Like, I am totally of the school of living over 90-day cycles makes no sense at all. You should be thinking about, like, how do you build the three and the five-year? And as you scale, you start having to really bake into the company that, you know, people used to get super excited at Square if they were going to launch something and they would see their, their way to making $10 million of revenue. And today I'm, like, not interested, which, you know, when a product was making that sort of, I was willing to kind of throw it all out to kind of start over. And so you have to reframe people constantly to like what's going to be needle moving a year or two. 
On the innovation front, right, we feel really strongly about beliefs like, you know, great ideas can come from anywhere. We try not to get people stuck too much into silos, like create motion, move people around. You know, when we founded Square Capital, that was an idea that got founded, frankly, in my, my operations team on our risk. It was really our risk officer who was really passionate about us being able to manage the risk side of a lending business. And I was passionate about it because I could see that small businesses were really hurting from not getting access to just small loan sizes, like six, $7,000, and thought we could do it well. And Jack had the confidence to say, go try it. So like we literally, you know, on a piece of paper, created a product. We offered it out to 30 people. I mean, we literally were almost like, we might as well have had sacks of money that we were showing up with because there was no tech involved. It was all just about product market fit. But he really trusted us to go do that when you know, neither of us were products. We weren't PMs, we weren't engineers. And we kind of built a product from that. And I think that really unleashes your whole organization to think, I can be creative, I can like, help build this company. I'm not just one thing or another. And it also creates a lot of incentive for the folks who are more in the product organization to really get on it. Because if, if the operations team is coming up with ideas, you really better be coming up with some great ideas. <laughs> Cool. Okay. So it sounds like leadership has been a really important part of the, the equation at Square. Yeah. So I asked uh, one of your colleagues, um, who's another senior exec at the company, to describe you. And what this person said was, outwardly, she'll seem more buttoned up, CFO-like, biased toward perfect. But it isn't always true. She can move fast defer her perfectionism, and inspire change. Wow, that's nice. That's pretty cool, coming no, from the CFO <laughs> of a billion-dollar revenue company. You don't hear that inspire change comment too often. So walk us through, like, why would he say that? Maybe there's an episode you might want to walk us through where you feel like, as a leader, you've been able to inspire change and yeah. how you were able to do that. He's clearly after some budget. Um, <laughs> I think it's an interesting position to be in leading a company, and I actually think you need to be clear in your more mature businesses that need discipline and need kind of accountability and maybe slightly more hands-on, you know, here's what we expect. But actually, by the way, one of the things I feel really strongly about is focusing on the output. Like, here's what I expect. Here's what you're accountable for. It might not be dollars and cents. It could be customers added. It could be net promoter score. Like, whatever you think the core KPI is to drive to in that period. But then you have to be able to kind of step back and let people whatever the input is, just figure it out. And I, I, you'll, if you work with me, you'll hear me say this over and over again, like output, not input, which actually then allows you to get away from, you actually can be perfect over here because I know what perfection looks like. That's what I expect. But I actually don't give a rat's ass how you do it. And I think that's important on so many dimensions. A, it allows people's own creativity to come to bear because you're not prescribing the exact way you want to see a product built, for example. Um, in fact, Stuart, who's going to sit up here this, later, you should ask him about this because we just debated this at a Slack, sorry, board meeting, about how to allow just more mm -hmm. engineering creativity that wasn't so prescribed. If you hire the right people and trust them, they'll do the right thing anyway. In fact, they'll do more than you're expecting. The other thing about output, not input, is I actually think it solves a lot of things like 
diversity and so forth. Like when I joined Square, again, I'm going off a little bit on a tangent to you, but it was very male. Like we were about 200 people. I think we we're almost all men. And like one of the things that they did, just drive me batshit, was like there was this operating meeting on a Sunday afternoon at like four o'clock. I'm like, I don't do operating meetings at four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. I work really damn hard, but I have two kids and I live in Marin and I'm not gonna spend two hours just driving back and forth before I've even put brain to work. I am not doing that. If you tell me what you want me to do, I will work so hard for you. I am like, you know, up at four in the morning or whatever. I'm a research analyst at heart, so we're always like awake early. And I will have like my day's work done before you even get to work. But don't prescribe like the how I'm going to do it or the when. And I think that really can hurt diversity too, frankly, because it doesn't allow people to fit into the other things that are important to them in their life. So output, not input, I think is incredibly important. The other thing that I, I think has helped me is that when I look at sitting in my role, when I put my CFO hat back on, I think of it a lot of as a portfolio. So that's why I was saying it, you have to be clear in your core businesses what you're expecting and let them do what they need to do to come with that outcome. But in really young businesses, like what has now become actually a great business for us, Cash App, which is our P2P individual, you know, kind of financial service in effect. When that business started, you know, we kind of had this mad idea that we were going to send money over text um, or email. You know, Jack first pitched it. I was like, what? We're going to do what? You've got to be kidding me. But because there was no frame yet of like what the product was or what it would look like, like I think within bigger companies, people go too quickly to a, a P&L, like I need to understand your revenue and then your COGS and then, you know, your OPEX and and they just suffocate any kind of great idea too fast. And so with that product, what we did is we kind of said, okay, you know, Brian who runs it, I was like, okay, you've got three million bucks. I shouldn't say this, you can lose all of it, but like you can't lose more. So at 2.5 million, we are going to have another conversation. And of course we did, and he somehow suckered me into like, you know, $10 million <laughs> as my next, that was my Series A, now Series B, or maybe that was exactly. C to Series A. And then at 10 million, you know, and then there was like another milestone where we had a real come to Jesus, where I'm like, you have negative unit economics. Like, this is not like a volume's gonna fix it game, dude. Like, you cannot do this anymore. And that was like a final kind of shifting where he figured out unit economics, you know, and it's just been a great story ever since. But it allowed me to really get away from him, take effectively a lot of my organizations, sometimes that will try to over-program, and just let him go innovate. And he would do crazy things. Like they, even to this day, they did like a pop-up in New York where they sold like sweatshirts. I was like, who funded that? He's like, you did. I'm like, we don't sell clothes. We're like a tech company. But you know, the way that you generate excitement in a consumer app, right, is so different from an enterprise app, which is the world I've come from, mm -hmm. that I need to let them go free and do that. And so hiring people that can be confident enough to do that and set up frameworks and not have to be so rigid and understand it's a portfolio, think of that as you think about growing your business if you want to kind of build these ecosystem plays. Okay, I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about like the strategy that you guys have taken of what seems to me to be like kind of a platform strategy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. No, it is. Today, 36% of your revenue is coming from you know, non-payment yep. products. Yeah. You talked about uh, Cash App, mm -hmm. you talked about appointments, mm -hmm. there's Caviar, yep. there's Square Capital. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things yep. beyond just that, you know, hey, that's a really cool way to yep. pay with my credit card. Yep. 
How have you run your business like that? And, and do you have any advice for entrepreneurs in the room mm -hmm. who are thinking about trying to build platform businesses mm -hmm. or at least have multiple products as part of their suite? Yeah, so it's definitely easier to write the story with hindsight because it all just seems so logical that, of course, we bought a food delivery company. And, and that's that one, one that still yet? <laughs> people struggle a little with. I, th I think at its soul, we saw, you know, starting with the customer struggle, like what was the first and most important thing or job that our customers needed us to do? And it was help me never miss a sale. It actually took us a long time to get to even that phrase because we'd be like, help me take a payment or help me accept a credit card. But it was actually help me never miss a sale so that my business will grow. And kind of understanding that as a core job tenant. And then it became help me run my business. So they were pulling us into a much more fully featured point of sale. What we definitely did well in the beginning, I think, is first of all, kind of a pristineness of data. So making sure that under the hood, we, we knew we had you know, not just the payment data down to the minutia of that, but we had the inventory data, we had the, you know, even employee that was selling data, we had the customer data so we could send digital receipts, like that persistent, you know, once you've signed up on Square, hopefully you've all done it, put in an email address or a phone number, allowing you to get the digital receipt, and I realize the world of data is kind of a scary thing to talk about at the moment, but we do have a lot of that data. You have to make sure people have utility from it, and you do it well, and you preserve who owns which bit of the data, but allowing that, I mean, that's the platform build, because now you have this kind of ocean of stuff that now you can build, I think, the natural adjuncts onto. And I think what we have done well is really going back to core competencies. Like when we founded Square Capital, we said, okay, what do we do well? We know we do risk really well, right? We would not have been able to onboard millions of sellers in minutes if we hadn't thought about risk completely differently, right? We scored the transaction, not the seller. So the old world still says, you know, Jack Dorsey is not someone you want to acquire because his credit cards are all maxed out. As opposed to, we would say, well, you know, he's a massage therapist. He actually is a massage therapist. And, you know, this looks like a completely reasonable transaction. It's happening in San Francisco. It's happening during the day. It's happening for, you know, we can kind of see that the person paying him, you know, we've seen them show up in our network before. Like all of the traits of what make for a healthy transaction. So that was one. We were like, we've got that. The second thing was we have an ecosystem that trusts us and we can put a loan in front of them like in the right context. Like we can actually see that their business is growing, for example, or we can see they've just opened a new store, so it makes sense that they might want to buy a fridge freezer now, whatever it is. So contextual serving up, and we don't have to go acquire that customer. And so those were kind of good building blocks mm. to say this is the next thing to do. That said, like what I remember most about Score Capital is we had a whole bunch of customers together. We were doing a dinner with them, you know, and I'd be like, what about loyalty? And what about CRM? And they were all kind of like, oh, it's kind of interesting or whatever. And the minute I said to someone, what about like a loan? Like, how do you get money? And like when that guy got up, he gave me his card and he's like, if you do that last thing, give me a call. And I was like, ah, like product market fit. So it's, you really just get inspired, I think, as you talk to your customers, back to your very first question. The other thing is, you know, on the caviar point, it's, it's a good one to mention that sometimes it's not an obvious next step and you are taking a risk and you have to be okay with that. And sometimes you'll shut things down like 
Back in the day, we shut down Square Wallet, which is still my like, favorite thing we ever created, and I had a total love fest with it, but it just didn't make sense, right? Square Wallet was this idea that you would pay with your face, you'd walk into, be like, cheers, everyone would know your name, you'd walk into Blue Bottle Coffee, and you'd be like, put it on Sarah, and it would all just happen, and boom, you'd walk back out again. It's amazing, like, I love that product to this day, but the downfall was we just didn't have, like, by Tying a buyer to a Square merchant to do that, turns out I buy things in many, many places that Square does not exist, like all the way up to Walmart. And by making me have to have a cognitive dissonance of like, when I'm in this situation, I use this payment sort of type, and then over here, I use a different type, just doesn't work for people. Consumer mm -hmm. behavior is really hard to change. And so we had to shut it down. So being as good about turning stuff on as turning stuff mm. Turning stuff off as turning stuff on is really important. So caviar, food delivery, I'll like end there, right? might not seem like the natural thing for a payment company to do. Thinking was, help a customer never miss a sale. We could see that 20-ish percent of our GPV was coming from food. We don't really yet to this day have a great offering for full-service restaurants. We mostly do that through partnerships through our API platform. But we did know that missing a sale for them would be missing out on delivery and pickup, which we think are major trends. And so we jumped kind of, I would call it like three years ahead on our strategy board, knowing because there was just a serendipitous acquisition that we could make with someone that we felt was brand aligned. And we've kind of spent three years now walking towards it and finally kind of really much more deeply integrating it. Mm -hmm. And now you start to see really nice flywheels happen. Like we can pay caviar couriers through Cash App so they get paid instantly as soon as they make a delivery. We can run payments in Caviar on Square. We can bolster our point of sale for restaurants by giving it a superpower that no one else in the point of sale business is giving. So in reality, our competitors are still back there the microses, the loas, people we want to kind of take out, and not really the DoorDashes, Uber Eats so much. And so we've created a very kind of different, ultimately, food delivery service because of that. So the ecosystem all fits together. Exactly. Makes a lot of sense. All right. So, Sarah, this has been awesome. We're going to end with our speed round, mm -hmm. right? I'll, I'll ask you a question. <laughs> okay. Say the first thing that comes into your head. You can use for a minute or so on each. Let's, let's go for, like, just what comes into your mind. Okay. Okay. Tell us who the entrepreneur is who you admire most and why. Oh, this guy sounds so self-serving because I want to say Jack and don't tell Stuart I said Jack. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, Everybody keep that a secret. I really <laughs> do admire Jack on so many fronts. Definitely because he's an amazing entrepreneur and visionary and innovative, but actually because he's so kind of holistic and never fails to surprise me, ever. So, like, for Christmas, I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're going back to see the family or whatever. He's like, I'm going to do a 10-day non-speaking meditation experience where you can't even make eye contact. I'm like, what? And, I, and like, part of me is like, what happens if something happens to the company? He's like... If it's really urgent, you can still get me, but it has to be really, really urgent. <laughs> or like last week, he was in London uh, and being interviewed, and he got asked, like, who would he most like to see a movie get made about? And he decided it would be me, which I'm like, that's crazy, because that would be really freaking boring, actually. <laughs> but like, he'll do things like that that I think make him... He's both... He's nailed the both be interested and be interesting... And I think that's what makes him so creative. And I, I, you know, I constantly, we are so yin and yang. Like I program myself, like every minute of every single day is somehow scheduled. 
um, between work, kids, boards, whatever. Like, that's what gives me tons of energy. And Jack is the polar opposite. Yeah, that doesn't sound like the most exciting movie. <laughs> okay. But his life uh, would yeah. be. <laughs> okay. Tell us your favorite interview question. You have a lot of great people oh, at Square. So yeah. favorite interview question you use and why? So I actually like this question at the moment about what's your purpose? Because I think it really unfolds for me back to, you know, is this someone who's interesting and kind of bigger picture? And you get a lot of like, what do you mean? What's my purpose? What is a purpose? Like purposes do evolve in life, but they get to the, I mean, you should all ask yourself right now. I'd love to go around the room. What's your purpose? Like, do you know what your purpose is? And I've done a lot, and then thanks to Jack again, like a lot of prodding of myself about, you know, what is the what at this stage of my life? Like, is it all, I want to be part of something that I feel is creating impact in the world. We use Square a lot, you were talking to me earlier, as a platform for change, for good change. Like, we just did a whole dream series. I should have talked about it when we were saying bringing customers into your space. So four documentaries one a quarter for the last year. We've done it about immigration. We've done it about Native Americans. We've just The one we just did was about uh, people coming out of incarceration and getting re-entry back into the world, right? These are topics that I feel so, bar immigration, because I am an immigrant, but I feel really ignorant about, but it, we can use our platform for kind of greater good, and it feels great to be part of that. I'll also mention that I follow Sarah on Twitter, and her Twitter account has gotten more and more interesting and, and active over the last year with a lot of these causes. So yeah. it's a good, if you guys were looking for someone else to follow, the Friley <laughs> is where you want to go. Uh, okay, last question for you on, on this rapid fire round. A book that you've enjoyed reading that you think all entrepreneurs should read? Okay, so I am an avid reader, so I could give you the whole list of things I think you shouldn't read. Um, <laughs> Like a book I read over the holidays, and I actually was just talking to another really famous entrepreneur, it turned out he had read it too, was Sam Walton's book, Made in America. Mm. You know, it kind of feels very old school, but you read about a guy who started like his first variety store and how he drove his truck because he lived, you know, right on the crossroads of Arkansas and all those states that all border each other to get like the best deal. And, you know, talk about focus on the customer. And really having the essence of what was important, which was everyday low prices, the most choice, and to be open and available when your customers needed you, right? And he never swayed from those things. So I thought that was fascinating. I love short stories. So I've gone through phases in my life of really getting into like Chekhov or William Travers, an Irish writer that I adore who writes amazing short stories. But from a business context, and they're not going to feel businessy when you read them, but the first is... Um, Shooting an, shooting an Elephant, I think, or Shooting the Elephant, it's George Orwell. And it's a position I think we all as leaders get into where we feel like we have to do the thing in front of us because everyone's watching and it is the thing that you're supposed to do and how, like, in the moment, it's clearly just not the right thing to do. So look for Shooting an Elephant, George Orwell. There's another one by Ursula Le Guin. She just passed away, unfortunately. She's like a fantasy writer called Those Who Walk Away from Omelas. So if you just look up Omelas, O-M-E-L-A-S, again, back to purpose in life, it asks a very deep question about what are you willing to put up with in the world, you know, to have this wonderful lifestyle that we all have, you know, where we can live in a place like this or really wherever you are, right? But we walk down the street and we pass people who are, 
you know, homeless probably because of mental health problems or whatever, and how much are we willing to put up with to still maintain this life that we all have? Mm. I could keep going with short, I love short stories, but those two have really kind of touched me recently. Awesome. Well, Sarah, this has been fantastic. Lots of great lessons for, certainly for VCs and for (laughs) entrepreneurs with this conversation. So I really want to thank you and please join me, everyone, in thanking Sarah. And and just before that, I actually want to thank these guys too, because we didn't touch on like the dark days and like the the wild rides that you go on. It is never just up into the ride. It's pretty freaking awful being, now I know, like building a company. Back when I was an analyst and I'd be like, how can they just not execute on this? Like, it's so straightforward. It is awful. And yet so amazing. Like, when you take a moment to breathe and look backwards, what you've all accomplished is wowing. But, you know, and then there's just this huge mountain ahead. But, like, your friends in dark times are really important. These guys were amazing friends. Not just, like, cheerleaders, but actually Glenn would be in our office helping us really think about the positioning of our story and you know, over and over again, like, how do people not understand that you are a recurring revenue, an annuity business that grows, and really help me think that through. And then you mentioned Silicon Valley Bank. I will give them a total shout out too. And I talked earlier to Elena, but Mark Harris, who was always there too, at times when I was fundraising and was like really like sweating it, the people who are there for you in the tough times, like you really start to understand who your friends are. So that's the silver lining of your tough times. But like, good job, all of you, what you're all doing too. I'm so impressed. Well, we didn't pay her to say that, but thank you very much. (laughs) You're welcome. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, you can find all our episodes on founderrealtalk.ggvc.com or at Apple Podcasts, Overcast, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please rate us and share as well to help others find this podcast. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a multi-stage venture capital firm based in Silicon Valley, Shanghai, and Beijing. We've been partnering with leading technology entrepreneurs since 2000, from seed to pre-IPO. We invest in globally-minded entrepreneurs in consumer internet, e-commerce, frontier tech, and enterprise, and have invested in over 300 companies since inception, including the likes of Airbnb, Alibaba, HashiCorp, Opendoor, Slack, Square, Wish, and many others. We're very proud of the 30 companies who've achieved multi-billion dollar valuations to date, and we expect several more in the future. Find out more at ggvc.com. If you have any feedback or ideas for future guests, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Thanks for listening.